I'll say this, just because something is the way it is doesn't mean that it's correct. In today's episode, we're talking economics and how two generations think differently about building a more equitable world. I spoke to Richard A. Fazone, who is part of the silent generation and retired after a 30-year career in telecommunications at General Electric, as well as Anna Gifty Apaku Ajiman, a 24-year-old activist and writer who founded the Sadie Collective to get more Black women to participate in economics, finance, data science, and policy. I chose to speak to Richard and Anna because a member of the silent generation, Joe Biden, just received over 81 million votes in the 2020 elections, where the millennial and Gen Z generation were the largest voting bloc. Rebuilding the American society is a top priority for both young and older voters. In our conversation, we tackled questions like, who has the power to build an economy that works for everyone and not just one segment of society? How will the new administration center the next generation and address progressive ideas around climate change, equal opportunity, and justice for all? I loved the genuine nature of this conversation, and I am excited to share it with you. I'm Jesse McGuire. Let's get right into it. As we've done these interviews, you know, we have found that generational stereotypes are have been sort of mildly accurate at best, right? We, everyone kind of knows what their generational stereotype is, but they have a lot of thoughts whether or not that fits or it doesn't fit. So we wanted to first start off by asking you both directly, what do you know about the other each other's generation and how would you personally characterize the inherent values of your own that have shaped your life experiences? My daughter is 44. We were chatting before. Basically, she lives in Geneva, Switzerland, married a Swiss mister, and she works there semi-nonprofit where she's worked for a number of years, whatever. But my eyes are focused on her. So the fact is, I don't have a lot of connection directly with anybody who's who's basically much younger than my daughter's age. And so it's other than kids in the neighborhood casually, and you know, it's hello and whatever. I, I don't really have a sense personal experience. So everything I get is off the internet. <laughs> so Richard, what is the last thing you read on the internet about Gen Z? Like just think, I mean, it, you can either agree or disagree, but what is the thing you last remember? Look, I read enough to know the characterizations particularly that is made, particularly, let's say the cancel culture. Cancel culture. Perfect. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sure there's an element of truth in that, but like anything else, after 77 years, it's not that I distrust the stereotype. I know it it it, it has it has uh, truth, but there's a lot more to the story. Uh, to me, it's hard. I, I don't spend a lot of time focusing on the the stereotype. I spend more time looking at the exception, and I find out the exception is greater than the than, than what's supposedly the general rule for any generation, including my own. We were buttoned down kids. Everything was simple, certain, proper. That's how it was. And I don't care if you're rich, poor, or wherever. That's how people behaved. That was my background. On the other side of the coin, knowing what I know 60-odd years later, after going through growing up in the 50s and 60s, basically, I look at the world of the 50s and 60s as different than I do today. 
basically, I'm a, it's, it's a very mixed view uh, that I have today. I don't see the starkness that's portrayed today. I think my generation, when I grew up, things were very stark. What was good and bad, uh, what was uh, uh, proper and improper. Today, it's, uh, there's a lot more gray to the area. As it, you know, that's the, that's the, the area we're in. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I feel like um, there's a lot, lot to talk about with what, everything you just said, but I want to start with uh, cancel culture. Do you have thoughts or ideas about how and why cancel culture is defining this young generation and maybe what Richard is seeing that has some truth and maybe not as much truth to it? Yeah, I mean, I think for the most part, I feel like cancel culture, I don't even like that term, quite frankly, because I feel like what really is being achieved there is holding people accountable. Now, granted, the level of accountability can only go so far. I feel like certain times when people are holding someone accountable, like in the in terms of canceling, it comes down to like, some for some people, it's like, oh, I'm just trying to shame this person to oblivion, um, which I think is like, you know, unless they're causing real harm and, you know, they need to, they're not being receptive to correction, then sure. But I think that like cancel culture as a phenomenon is really about sort of Gen Z and very young millennials saying, yeah, enough is enough. Like if you're coming incorrect, we're going to call you out on it. And it just so happens that it's going to be millions of people calling you out, um, which can be a bit overwhelming depending on who it is. But I think to some degree, it also forces people who do have platforms to be very intentional about how they communicate. So you can't just come on Twitter and act wild, like, you know, somebody will clock you very quickly. (laughs) So I think, you know, being aware that what you say matters and you you should say something if it's appropriate. And if it's not appropriate, you should be accountable for it. And so, you know, to the degree in which accountability becomes shame is something that, you know, I'm also kind of thinking about often, right? Especially now that I have a bit of a platform, I'm like, you know, let me make sure that, you know, somebody corrects me. I accept that correction. I apologize. I do what I need to do as if I would see them in like real life. But like having some level of platform also amplifies what's going on and what's being canceled. And I think canceling, quote unquote, canceling has helped to some degree. It's, you know, Me Too was an entire cancel movement, (laughs) right? Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, And I know, uh, so Richard had a chance to talk about, uh, like I said, stereotypes of, uh, or I shouldn't say stereotypes, but some headlines or things that you've seen. Um, what do you know about the silent generation? I didn't know that they were called the silent generation, but I do know of the generation. And I, I had to actually Google it. I was like, you know, why were they called the silent generation? And I was like, oh, yeah, they were the silent majority. <laughs> so A part of it. I could mean, be. that's what it's. It could be. It's part of it. But I think that this idea of the civil rights movement sort of taking a foothold during that generation, um, that sort of what I'm familiar with and yeah, just like sort of how race relations sort of unfolded during that time. And so granted there are people who have like, you know, their unique experiences, but I think by and large, you know, there was the silent, like that, that was the silent majority was a part, a big part of that generation. And I think that also might be sort of why you see now this sort of revival of 
the civil rights kind of movement in some way, um, currently, at least in this year, where people are using sort of public spaces to declare sort of, you know, why racism is bad, why people should be, you know, actively trying not to be an anti-Black racist and so forth. So I think that to some degree, it's kind of like looking at history and saying, you know, what mistakes were made in the discourse and then how do we fix them now? So that's sort of what I'm familiar with. Um, I'm also familiar with the fact that they, I think as Richard pointed out, Great Depression, multiple wars, like it was just a really traumatizing time. So that is something that I'm also vaguely aware of um, as well. Just to, to appreciate uh, the, the silent generation, the other name and I pulled out, uh, there, there's a sheet here I got. <laughs> I love it. On the oh, wow. Internet and so I, I pulled it out just to see the number. And I said, you know, that really is, we were kids who skated. Mm-hmm. In other words, we when I grew up at seven, my parents knows the war just ended three or four years earlier. We had no, no sense of that. We were protected. And frankly, we grew up the peak of what we would call, uh, and many uh, view it as, as the best of times. Why? Because uh, uh, people were coming back from the war, the economy was booming, etc. cetera. I, I never was into the, the boomer side because I was graduating college. But I guess my, my point is, Silent, the other word was traditionalist. Why? Because every element of society, religion, economics, politics, and culture is pretty uniform. You know, one TV station, we didn't have you know, uh, uh, the feeds we have today. What we heard was the nightly news was 15 minutes. So we were people who were, uh, you, you, you knew about a few big things and a few big things were happening. What's fascinating on my end, as we've looked at these different generations, I feel like there's been so much conversation about boomers. But I think the silent generation, what you're talking about, has had a lot more airtime because Joe Biden is of the silent generation. So I would love to know, Anna, what your hope is and and what you are hoping to see in this new administration as we uh, are about to put in a uh, member of the silent generation into office. Um, yeah, I mean, I think one thing I want to mention really quick is that, you know, conversations around race and inequality have been happening. They've been happening amongst black and brown people for quite some time. People that are not black and brown just chose to ignore. So <laughs> I just want to clear clear that yep. up. Um, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think what is important about Biden is that, well, first of all, I don't agree with him on everything. So I want (laughs) to put that out there in case, you know, I think what's important, however, is who he's surrounding himself with. So you're seeing that a lot of people who are, you know, on his economic transition team are forward thinking boomers, I would say, right? So people who are really prioritizing and centering the next generation. You also see younger staff members, especially amongst the you know, staff members of color that are being a part of his transition team and hopefully picks for his staff and, you know, cabinet and so forth. And then you're seeing him sort of embrace ideas that are pretty much being championed right now by Gen Z and millennials. So climate change as a justice movement, right? You know, this idea of intersectional environmentalism and how this is going to disproportionately affect Black and brown people. But, you know, to some degree, I think what AOC, um, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez said is absolutely correct, right? This idea of 
he he does come from a different generation, as do many people in government. You know, I do think it's kind of ridiculous that a good chunk of the elected leaders are above the age of 60. I don't I don't know who made that decision. I don't know if it's a good one, <laughs> quite frankly. I think people like to equate age with wisdom, and I don't think those two things are synonymous. But what I will say is that what AOC said around this election being pivotal will really depend on how progressive ideas are reflected in the administration. So, you know, what does it mean to have an inclusive economy and actually mean that through your policies, right? What does it mean to ensure that everybody has access to health care, for example? These things are surprisingly controversial. <laughs> you know, recently there was an upheaval around student debt. Why do people think that people being in debt is okay? I don't understand, actually. Um, and I'm speaking as somebody who actually has been fortunate enough to get scholarships and not be in student debt. I have plenty of friends who are, like hundreds and thousands of dollars in student debt. And it it's a debt that doesn't escape you. So this idea of having somebody in the White House who hopefully is surrounding themselves with people who get it, you know, who've experienced it, right? We've recently gone through a presidency with people who don't get it, as far removed as you possibly can be. And so it's like, what is hopefully getting towards the opposite end of it, where there's people who get it, who people who want to see those changes actually be manifested and actually want to center the next generation. Because I think to center the next generation, you have to put your ego aside. And my hope is that, you know, the Biden administration will do that. And putting your ego aside means also being willing to learn, being willing to be accountable, right? So again, you know, I think Gen Z and millennials on the later spectrum um, are really about holding people accountable. And as the next generation that's coming up to vote in the next election, we are going to be keeping our eyes peeled to make sure that, you know, those ideals are actually reflected in the administration. Yeah. I love that. I love this phrase that you said that the you're hoping this administration centers the next generation. I, I love that. Richard, is age and wisdom synonymous? <laughs> the answer is yes and no. And and I, and I'll tell you the, the reason I say that is it's hard to be wise everywhere. People disregard fact today. There's no more fact-based world than there is today and in the future even more so. The fact we put in so much Money, effort, and trust in electronics and what it can do for us. Wisdom, I say wisdom is, 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 is not an easy word. From my standpoint, I think you've got to look at the individual. Day to day on most things, people are pretty wise. Uh, they do things and they treat one another. Generally, my experience has been pretty well because there's always going to be trade-offs. And Anna, it's easy to say to be accountable. But it's always easier when, when you're accounting for the other guy. And particularly, and I would point out, when you're in an advocacy role, as we all are in some respect, particularly in the public square, advocacy comes very, uh, very, very easy and, and, and it's required. You've got to make your case. The fact is, nobody makes uh, uh, the case for the other side very easily. And the fact is, uh, that's why I... I don't want to say less interested in politics. Uh, I, I'm always uh, hopeful uh, for a, any administration uh, that at the end of uh, their term, 
we're better off people. And the question, we can make a judgment in any administration where we are or we aren't. But I look at what do people do every day? How do they feel about it? How do they treat one another? I look at crime rates. I look at a whole bunch of things. And the reality is I see politics uh, as one important part of uh, the world. But there's religion, economics, and culture. We all come together in those other domains, and politics is just one of them. So that's why uh, uh, I don't look for, and I, hey, I hope the political system and the judicial system and the justice system holds people accountable. Hey, uh, it, it, that's, that's critical in every case. On the other side, uh, I don't see it as the only way. And frankly, today, it's a lot less than it used to be. In other words, uh, 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 the norms of the past, when I grew up, norms were simple. We didn't have to think about it. Uh, we, we, uh, we were told what the norms were and we followed them. Today, that's not the case. And, 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 and we have to live in, uh, in a world where people believe differently than other people. And again, uh, I'm, I'm hopefully uh, very hopeful for this administration uh, that'll come in, do a good job, and that after four years or eight years, uh, they go out the door and we end up saying, you know what, for the vast majority of people in the world, we're better off, and particularly for uh, 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 people who are, who've always been uh, at the lower end of the scale on almost everything. Why? Because that ought to be, in other words, that ought to be at least one of the aspects of society. One of the goals. So let me do it this way. I'm skeptical that there's an easy solution to anything. Why? Because there never has been. You know, we know we're living in a capitalist society. And I think with that, knowing that it is about how do we make money? How do we how do we do that? I think you were seeing that mobility and opportunity and the right to justice is affected by our economic status, right? If you don't have money, you're and you don't have a way to, to play into the system or you don't have a way to know how the system is going to help you. Uh, it then makes me think of the question around how do we build an economy that provides equal opportunity? I mean, that's a huge question, right? I do want to briefly address what Richard said, though, around sort of the system. I mean, the system, I think, is quite frankly, fundamentally unjust. I mean, it's working as it, in it was intended, which was to be beneficial towards certain groups and not other groups. And I think that one thing that gives me hope about Biden's administration is that he has individuals on his transition team currently, many of which I know that are specifically addressing systemic racism and how sort of sexism infuses into how decisions are being made and how decisions are being made on behalf of other people. I think with regards to um, your question. So there's this really amazing idea that I have been talking about a lot. It's not my idea. It's Janelle Jones's idea. She's the managing policy director of an organization called the Groundwork Collaborative. And basically, the idea is called Black Women Best. So it says, you know, if the economy is working for Black women, it's probably working for everybody else. And I, I don't think there's anything truer than that, quite frankly. Black women are at the brunt of literally every economic decision possible. And, you know, the question of economic recovery begs another question. Who is the economy actually recovering for? If it's recovering for white guys, I don't think the economy is recovering. Why? Because white guys are not the majority of the country. Um, you know, if the economy is only recovering for, you know, I don't know, like 
certain groups within the economy. I don't know if you can say the economy itself is recovering. It's recovering for a certain group of people. That doesn't mean it's indicative of this larger trend. And so Black Women Best basically says that if we center Black women in you know, the face of policy, in the face of the economy, we will actually see a more equitable world. Why? Because Black women, as a Black woman myself, are the most marginalized group in the world. Period. You know, like I, you, we can say country, but no, like there's an entire continent that would dispel that. Right. So um, this idea of black women being sort of the backbone of, I would say, the world to some degree. Right. You know, Africa, quite frankly, as a continent relies heavily on its women and all of which are black for the most part. Um, and I think the United States, we just showed through this election, black women show up again and again and again, and continue to be marginalized again and again and again. However, you know, when you think about centering Black women, you know, it really gets at this sort of what's happening with the most marginalized groups in the country. And so if we're saying Black women are the most marginalized groups, every other group above Black women that's less marginalized, um, Black men, other races across genders and so forth, those groups get alleviated automatically. And you kind of see it right now with COVID, right? So Black women have about a 13% unemployment rate right now as compared to the national average, which is closer to 9%, right? So if we had policies that were actually trying to get Black women relief in their jobs, relief with regards to rent, making sure that people are getting money right now so they can afford to live another day, maybe we would be in a much better situation, right? Because right now, you know, we're sort of headed towards a recession. I would say we're sprinting towards it more so. <laughs> we might already we might already be there, right? We might be entering the, the house of recessions at this moment. And I think it's really preventable if you think about who would benefit the most from policies that are supposed to help the nation, Black women. And then if you aim for that, then everybody else basically gets alleviated because everybody else is doing better than that group in terms of the economy. So yeah, that's kind of like my hot take. Shout out to Janelle Jones. I shout her out in every interview, basically. <laughs> well, it, it, it's it's hard to argue w- w- with what you say in terms of uh, who bears the brunt. There's no question about it. That's one of the problems. There has not been an easy answer. We've been looking at this uh, for decades. And so uh, we will see. The real question is, does it happen? Just looking, it's not going to happen unless everyone ends up accountable. And we'll see. And that's an important thing because like anything else, uh, the system is is what it is. Uh, It's been changing over decades. It'll continue to change. Uh, the, the only th- thing is, it's it's hard. Uh, it's hard, for, at least for me. I'm I'm unique. I don't have I don't have strong political views. Some people do. Uh, I certainly uh, don't have strong political views. It's just me personally. I'm, I'm I would say I'm a rarity. Yeah, I mean, I have two comments to say to that. Um, thanks so much, Richard, for sharing that perspective. I think the first thing is this idea of the system is what it is, and so we should just kind of keep it moving. It's something that I think... No, no, I don't. No, I don't want to say that. That's not what you're saying? Okay. Uh, Clarify, please. Oh, no, absolutely not. When I say the system, let me scratch that. Society will be what it it ends up being. It'll be a a whole bunch of factors. I've been around long enough to know that there's no simple 
measured. Okay. I spent a lot of time looking at it. I live in a democracy. I'm hoping most people push in, in, in the direction. And if I want to live in America, and as, as I do, uh, I want to live there. I'm not going to go to the next country. So I'm happy. Frankly, I said, the world today to me, again, this is a value. I think we're better off as a society at any, than any time in our life. Why? Because we came a long, long way from when I was a kid. What you've done already in a very short period of time, I say the same thing about Jesse. Very impressive. People go, who, who, are, who, who go out, it's not a matter of being smart. It's got to be committed and to go out and do something. And you're doing it. I appreciate that. Yeah. I think what I was going to also say too, is that, you know, I, I've heard this rhetoric around, and I'm not saying this is what you're saying, but just in general, you know, certain people saying that, you know, I don't get into politics, right? That's not something that I do. But I think what people need to fundamentally understand is that some folks in like some specific groups inherently are political because our identity is politicized. You get what I'm saying? So as a Black woman, I can't just say I'm not into politics because politics debates my identity constantly. You know what I'm saying? So I think when people say that to some degree, I won't say I take offense to it. I'm just kind of like, I need you to understand that there is multiple perspectives on that perspective, you know, on that point of politics, right? Oh, absolutely. And that, you know... It's a privilege to say that I'm not a politics person, that I can kind of remove myself from politics and focus on my individuality. And so that's something that I just wanted to also add to the dialogue as well. Yeah. No, if if I thought I could make a contribution that was meaningful to me, I would do Mm. it Uh, right now. Uh, The fact of the matter is I don't see that as myself. The last thing I would discourage anyone else to say, don't worry about it. That's not the issue. Uh, There's enough people in politics right now. If I were going to make a difference uh, in in a material respect, I don't see it. Uh, And for a lot of reasons. Uh, The fact is, I think the people in my generation, and frankly, I think every generation uh, before and after me, uh, I think Americans in general are great adapters. It doesn't mean that everyone gets what they want from uh, the generation uh, before them, it's impossible. One thing that I feel like I struggle with that I wish I heard more from those that are older than me and generations that are older, so even Gen X, boomers, silent generation, there's never a conversation about how do you actually bring people into the conversations that can uh, have the perspective, Anna, of what you're talking about, which I know is at the heart of your work. And I feel like most of the policies that have been created and most of the conversations and the uh, thinking around what's happened has come from white thinkers. So I do feel like the question of how do you start to create an economy that gives people equal opportunity is to actually bring voices into that conversation that understand what equal opportunity looks like. So I feel like with that, Anna, I would love to just hear a little bit from you about why it's so important for Black and Brown women to be given access and how you think that they are going to change this idea that we are just stuck with the system and we are stuck with the policies. And instead, every every four years, we have an election where we expect Black women to come out and, and change the, the direction of, of what's happening. Yeah. Um, <laughs> have many thoughts. I'll say this, just because something is the way it is doesn't mean that it's correct. So that's something that I wanted to sort of like lead with. 
I think the, the best example I can use, at least in the context of the economy, of Black and brown people just being excluded from the conversation is the 2008 financial crisis. So essentially, you know, Wall Street was on fire. Everybody was broke because some white guys in Wall Street made some really, really bad decisions about, you know, how to manage money. And it almost tanked our economy, basically. <laughs> okay. But here's the thing, though. The decisions that they were making um, were disproportionately impacting Black and brown communities. So, you know, a couple years before the financial crisis actually happened, Black and brown economists were noticing that there were a lot of foreclosures happening in Black and brown communities. Sometimes loans were happening in Black and brown communities. Sort of these weird economic sort of trends were happening. This economist called Dr. William Spriggs, who is housed at Howard University, was like, yeah, like we were kind of telling people like, hey, something's happening. Um, and we're not sure, like, I, I think they knew what it was, but it was sort of like, you should be paying attention to this because this might be indicative of a larger trend that might come to pass. And indeed it did in 2008 when we had the Great Recession. And so the question around including voices in the room, well, first of all, I don't think there should be a room. I think it should be you know, I'm a Black person, I'm in this country, I'm representing a community that matters to this country, therefore my voice should be recognized, heard, amplified, and considered. Period. There shouldn't be any dispute about whether or not I'm qualified enough to talk about what I'm talking about, or whether or not my perspective is meaningful enough, because the truth of the matter is, you know, the Black labor market is a substantial part of the labor market. You can't deny that fact, right? If we're talking about Black women in particular, there's more Black women in the labor market than white women. It's always been true. So the, the case here about bringing in Black and brown voices in particular into the spaces of economics and policy and finance and banking is really a question of who has power and who has the power to tell the stories about the economy. And, you know, if Everybody who has the power to tell the stories about the economy are white men who come from Harvard and privileged environments. Our economy is going to look like a shit show, to say the least, <laughs> right? Where it's kind of like you have people who don't have a full perspective. And the way that I sort of tell this analogy to people is if I asked you to build an airplane and I only gave you the first page of the manual and I said, go ahead and build it. We're good to go you would maybe have only one wing and maybe be able to be airborne for like two seconds and then the plane would crash. And that's exactly how I view sort of the economy. If we're thinking about sort of the economy as the plane and the manual being one group of people in the economy and saying, yeah, y'all fix it. There's a lot of perspectives that they're missing just because of their lived experiences. And then what's worse is that, you know, it gets perpetuated where it's like, the only experts I see are other white guys. So I'm just going to recommend white guys to my position so that we can like all figure this out together or white women rather. Right. And it's kind of like, no, like there's a bunch of perspectives that you're missing. And it's important for you to include those perspectives, not just because it's the right thing to do. Obviously, it's the right thing to do, but it's because people's lives literally depend on it. Right. You know, we have more black and brown people involved with sort of the economic decision making around what's happening with COVID we would probably be addressing the racial health disparities, you know, robustly. There would be a relief fund. There would be a stimulus check. Why? Because Black and brown communities are being disproportionately impacted by this illness. And it's astronomical how much um, impact this illness has had on Black and brown people as compared 
to other groups, right? And so this idea of including voices is a matter, quite literally, of life and death. If you want people to live, you will include these voices in the room. And I think that, you know, at this point, I've been pretty like, (laughs) what is it? Tame about, oh, you know, it's really about, you know, getting perspectives. No, it's about life or death. Like, if you want people to live, you will include their voices in the room to ensure that they're seen and heard and amplified so that we can live to see another day. If you care about me as the Black woman who you like following on Twitter, I hope you'll care about all the other Black people because, you know, we all need to live, right? There's other mechanisms at work that are trying to wipe us out. This is something that we need to ensure reflects us so that, you know, we can not only just live, but we can thrive. And that's really kind of the key here about inclusivity. I mean, if I had to like sum up everything you said, yeah, there needs to be a shift in power. I was about to say, nothing moves unless power shifts. When Anna brought up the Black Woman Best Framework, it brought to mind the Malcolm X quote that reads, the most disrespected person in America is the Black woman. Black women today are bearing the brunt of this economic crisis and must be centered in future policy making. It really is a privilege to say you're not into politics or you don't get political. As a millennial heir, I hope we realize our opinions, decisions, and actions are inherently political and affect the world. This conversation was an eye-opener for me and a call to arms to my own generation and future generations to ask ourselves what our role is in changing and shaping important policies. At the same time, Richard defines adaptability as the greatest asset of the silent generation, which gives me hope. It's easy to seek out instant gratification, and younger people must understand the virtue of patience, listening, and adapting. It's only when you stay the course and you dig down deeper, even when times get tough, that we can create a lasting legacy instead of a flash in the pan. We can fight to move things faster, but change often takes longer than we think.